Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Ranching Reboot, the podcast that reboots your thinking about farming, ranching, food systems, and the people that operate them. I'm your host, Brian Alexander. You can find me on social media as Red Hills Rancher. For this week's episode, I've made a connection with someone from Down Under that can answer some of the questions I have after talking with my friends Josh, Gwen, and Hobbs about their Americanized experiences in Australia. That's right, we've got a genuine Aussie lined up today, but first... This episode and all episodes in 2024 are sponsored by Land Trust. Land Trust is your go-to number one stop no matter if you're a sportsman looking for a place to enjoy the outdoors or if you're a landowner looking to make a little side cash without a lot of extra work. The Land Trust network is growing fast with new properties being added all the time. So no matter what you're looking for or where you're at, what you're looking to hunt, Land Trust has something to offer you. Land Trust just isn't about hunting and fishing. There's so much more. Did you know that you can offer things like trail rides, bird watching, beaver reviewing, or just plain old hiking or anything in between? Land Trust has it. Even if you've already got all your hunting leased, Land Trust can help you connect with folks that will love your ranch just as much as you do. What are you waiting for? Contract, contact Land Trust today and talk with one of their amazing landowner success managers and see what Land Trust can do for you. Call 406-709-8450 or just click the link in the show notes. That number again is 406-709-8450. Don't forget about the Ranching Reboot Discord server where you can interact with other podcast fans, meet previous guests, and talk to me directly if you're into that sort of thing. Bob Kinford is also there dispensing wisdom on a daily basis, so if nothing else, drop by our Discord server and tell him he's short. He won't mind. In other news, I'm populating my Red Hills Rancher channel on YouTube with every video that I have from every podcast I've done. Unfortunately, there's going to be a few missing. I'm doing the best I can to get them up as fast as I can. My goal is between 8 and 10 a month, plus current releases. That should bring the YouTube channel current before summer. Speaking of videos, did you know that now you can watch Ranching Reboot in video on Spotify? So go check that out if video is your thing. I got to tell you guys about some events coming up if you're looking for some awesome educational and networking opportunities this winter. The first one I want to tell you about is Soil Health U. Soil Health U is pre presented by the High Plains Journal, and it's one of my favorite conferences to not only go to, but also to speak at. They didn't ask me to speak this time, but they've given me some space to do my thing, which is a stick of microphone in front of people and let them talk. So come see me at Soil Health U in Salina, Kansas, January 17th and 18th at the Tony's Pizza Event Center. Registration is still open, tickets are on sale, and there's a special deal just for Ranching Reboot listeners. Use the code RHR24 at checkout and get a special registration rate of just $99. The week after Soil Health U, there's another great conference called No-Till on the Plains. No-Till on the Plains is one of the oldest and longest-running regenerative conferences. I think this one is uh, 26 or 7. I'm probably wrong. Anyway. No-Till on the Plains is held in Wichita, Kansas, January 22nd, 3rd, and 4th. This year, they have a fantastic lineup of speakers. You can hear from Nick Voss, a Southwest Kansas farmer and sheep raiser, also a previous guest on the podcast, talk about his experiences with foliar spraying. Ranchers Deanna and Kelly Lazinski from North Dakota are going to talk about how they increase their profits using soil health principles. And Jay Ferrier is giving a keynote talk this year. Jay is a conservationist that retired from the NRCS in 2020 after a distinguished 40-year career. So make sure you come out to No-Till on the Plains, Wichita, Kansas, January 22nd, 3rd, and 4th. If you can't make it to Wichita or Salina, and maybe you're a little farther west or out in Colorado, check out High Plains No-Till in Burlington, Colorado, February 6th and 7th. High Plains No-Till is legendary. My favorite part is usually hanging out in the hotel lobby, 
the first evening of the conference, get to hang out with some of my best friends, and we have some of the best conversations. So just a few highlights from the speakers lineup. Everybody's favorite Kiwi, Nicole Masters, is going to talk about soil function. Don Day is going to tell us what he's expecting for weather on the plains this year. So come join me and a whole bunch of my friends at High Plains No-Till in Burlington, Colorado, February 6th and 7th. As always, all the relevant links from today are in the show notes or on my link tree, which you can find in any of my social media bios. My guest today is a native Australian with deep roots in the farming and ranching. Today, we're going to talk about how he transitioned from a conventional style farm to one that is, in his own words, clean and green. We're going to get into it all today from single slate, yeah, single trait selection to the inherent fertility in cattle to mushrooms and dung beetles. Please welcome Bryant Usher to the show. All good. Bryant Usher, welcome to Ranching Reboot. Really appreciate you taking the time out of your, uh, let's just call it vacation or work trip to, uh, to sit down and do this with me. So welcome to Ranching Reboot, sir. Thank you very much, Brian. Really, in, uh, yeah, excited to be part of it all. That's for sure. Well, I'm really excited for this conversation. So as podcast fans know, over the last couple of weeks, I had my friends uh, Josh and Gwen Hoy on and to talk about their recent trip to Australia. And they went out to, I think, uh, Clifton Hills. That's probably wrong, but huge, like four million acre cattle station out in the outback. And they went and they did cowboy stuff in the outback for a couple of weeks and had a great time. I have another friend, Hobbs Magaray, who was also uh, just on a podcast a couple of weeks ago. Um, and he recently took a trip and I believe it was down around the Sydney area. And that was more of a consulting. That was it was a different kind of work trip. So we got two different perspectives um, on on ranching in Australia and I'm really excited to hear yours. So why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, where your operation is located? Okay, yeah, well, Australia is a very big country and there's no doubt, uh, yeah, four million acre properties are not necessarily common, but there's lots of them compared with probably what's in your country. Um, yeah, we only occupy a very, very small patch of it uh, on the Sunshine Coast, just near, uh, and we call it the Noosa hinterland, so near Noosa, the... Uh, uh, well-known beach city or, you know, good holiday re resort place. And um, it was a farm that my parents bought back in 1969. I was only seven. And, uh, yeah, it's been running as a beef operation since. My wife and I came back to this farm at the end of uh, 2018 and started uh, doing our development and going into the regen farming at the uh, beginning of 2019. Um, we also did uh, come from a bit further west in what they call the Darling Downs area. Um, Chinchilla was the closer town. And that's where I did a lot of my original um, regen transformation from chemical farming. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I've got a journey that's taken me from one end of the spectrum to the other, I would say. So, yeah. So, yeah, Kin Kin is our local little local town. We only operate on 400 acres of our own. And I'm a, I think I'm a little bit over a thousand acres total, uh, operating on six different small farms. Very cool. Where okay, where is the New Sahinto lands? Is that's is that on the east coast? Yeah, so east coast, about halfway up, just above Brisbane, probably a two-hour drive from Brisbane, um, so people can have a quick look on the map. And literally only thirty minutes drive from the sea, where we where the farm is. 
Um, it's a high rainfall area. So that, you know, in your in your um, measurements, about sixty to seventy inch rainfall doesn't always come. Climate's changed a little bit. <laughs> We've literally come out of the driest time that's been on record. Um, we went over twelve months with only five hundred mils. Normally, we would have sixteen hundred. So, yeah, it was complete change around the year before was three thousand mils. So yeah, it's it's varied the same as anywhere. I think we we have to adapt and change with the climate. Um, so yeah, it's look, it's, it's it's what I'm seeing here when now that I am traveling in this country, it's very different. Um, our grasses grow, you know, strong and fast when they grow in the in the summertime. We do get some growth in the winter, but um, yeah, a little bit different from what I'm seeing here. That's for sure. Well, to be fair, you're in. California on the West Coast visiting, right? Correct. Yeah. It, yeah. And that would be a little bit different. You know, West Coast California should be, you know, a much different weather pattern or climate than East Coast uh, Australia, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> um, just real quick. So a millimeter or a hundred millimeters of rain is how many inches or so? Um, so that one inch is 25 mils. Okay. Well, so there when you yeah. So when you were saying 500 mils, that's like, that's 20 inches of rain. I mean, that's, that's quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a dry, that's a very dry period for us in a, in a wetter environment. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Yep. So you say uh, the family bought the farm in 1969, but you didn't come back till, till 2018. A um, couple of questions there, and I'm not sure which way to go. Cause one of the things I really want to talk about is, is what private property rights are like in Australia and what it's like trying to run an agricultural operation the way you want to. Um, so maybe you can, maybe you can kind of speak to that um, since you do have some land that your family bought. Okay. So it's probably pretty more, it is more relevant now that we are at this uh, farm, which to a fair degree has transitioned into lifestyle um, areas when, I, when we went there back in the you know late 60s, early 70s. What do you mean by lifestyle areas? Um, like people buy the land to live in and enjoy the environment rather than run agricultural enterprises. Yeah. So okay. it is, it is, you know, it's a good place to live. It's um it's got a nice climate. We do get frosts in the hollows, but we seldom get below zero in in our uh, which is I think your 32 is freezing, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so we seldom get below that. Um, we can wake up and put a coat on until probably seven or eight o'clock, and then you'll be back to short sleeves. So, and that's all year round. You know, it's 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 a nice environment. We do you also get like the hundred and twenty five degree or forty five to fifty degree C summers? No, our worst days will be our thirty six to thirty eight degrees and really humid. So, you know, yeah, we don't get. Because we're close to the coast, I suppose, we've got the big body of sea, you know, ocean there to, to keep our temperatures moderated a bit, but we certainly get very humid, extremely humid. Okay. Now I got to ask, because the weather actually sounds decent compared to everything else I've heard from Australia. How bad are the flies? <laughs> well, yeah, the flies are bad. Um, <laughs> we, we do struggle, and I think you guys call it the horn fly with our actual operation. So the uh, buffalo fly, it is a serious problem for us in that that climate, you know, and uh, and we're doing all sorts of things, and uh, you know, probably as we get into chatting, uh, to try and you know counter counter the issues that go with that. So uh, 
I don't know how maybe I should start my story, you know, way back and, and tell a little bit more of how the transitions happened over time. Please do. Um, I did actually come from the full blown chemical farming operations out at Chinchilla. And um, I was an actual spray rig operator, so ground rig operator for 10 years. So I went out every day and killed something, tried really hard to kill something. And uh, we, you know, it was for that era of no-till, zero-till uh, transition. Look, you know, and everybody was on board with that was the best way to do it, there's no doubt. But then I went to uh, the, the Grazing for Profit School, which came about because, you know, we weren't doing well in our whole operation. And it was probably the transition of my life as far as uh, getting ahead around doing things and, and smarter might be the better way. And we made huge changes from that day forward almost. It was just, yeah, started making changes. I think the, ch the biggest changes came first in business, understanding that I was trying to do too much, too many, too many enterprises. Second thing then started to come from we're not doing it right, not working with nature, we're working against it. And um, it's a hell of a fight working against nature. It's certainly a lot more pleasant and a lot more enjoyable working with it. So we, uh, yeah, we, we, my now wife, Susie, um, it wasn't with me back then, but we've made it uh, a major contribution to, to the saying to ourselves, we're only going to do it clean and green. Once we came to the farm, on the coast, we then just pretty much said, we don't want to do it with chemicals. If we can avoid them, we will. So that then created lots of issues. When you're in a high rainfall environment, you do get almost everything. I do say to people, it's a land of abundance. Everything grows, everything lives here. Um, and you're, you know, you're up against nature in, in lots of different ways. But with, uh, with all the training I've done through the RCS system, which I think is the same as your ranching for profit schools, yep. same system, same, same uh, structure, certainly, yeah, extremely powerful in the fact you're then starting to talk with like-minded people. You're getting a lot of uh, background and, and insight from other people's journeys. And uh, yeah, so we made some big changes because we knew we could, I think. Um, going to that farm where mum and dad had literally had to go out every day and spray something. Um, they had a, they had a weed called groundsel back when I was, you know, younger, as in probably my twenties and dad had everything set up to go out every day and spray groundsel. And, uh, then of course they did finally get a, uh, um, a natural bug that, that wiped out the groundsel, but then of course something else came and then dad was out spraying some broadleaf other things. And when I came to the farm, I think I realised that the poor thing had a, a belly full of, of chemical. And uh, as much as, look, it always looks green, it always grows something, we could tell that it was sick. Particularly once we uh, we put all of our um, fencing, water and infrastructure in, we thought it should have bounced away quicker. And it, and it hasn't. But we're certainly making some big inroads now. We're, we're I think, what are we three years into doing the, the fence from when we finished fencing. And uh, yeah, big changes are now starting to happen. Um, so yeah, so now we've, we're doing without chemical, which is obviously a, a lot bigger challenge. Um, and as I mentioned to you before we started, it, the buffalo fly is is a major issue for us as, as a cattle operation. So they, they annoy the hell out of the cattle. 
we're doing all sorts of things like um, actually I've got a dung beetle nursery started trying to get different dung beetles on the farm. We've got some, but not many. And I think they're probably one of our best possible, you know, opportunity to make a change on the, on the fly population. We use um, supplements, you know, mineral supplements, uh, sulfur and, and garlic and those sort of ones. I think it's, it's a pretty common one to try and utilize. So we're not using chemical. We do use a deterrent um, in our in our case, it's called cattle coat. So it's more of a, uh, it's an organic product. So that's a deterrent. So once you put it on the cattle, they don't necessarily want to land on the, on the beast. I use also a diatomaceous earth, which is a ground rock um, as a duster. And I've just got a little wagon that travels with the mob that they can dust themselves as, as they go around from paddock to paddock. So yeah, we've got our challenges. Yeah, sorry. I was going to say interesting. And one of the things I remember from, I can't remember if it was, I heard this when I was talking to Josh or Hobbs, that the Aborigines said that Australia was a paradise. And then all of a sudden, one day there were flies and white men. <laughs> Wonder which one's worth. <laughs> that's, that's probably a fair question. Um <laughs> Do you know anything about that? Did, did the flies come with the Europeans? That's actually a good question. I, I would suggest probably they did. Um, but but I, I don't know. They might talk about it as being a natural fly. I don't know. I really don't know that question. Sorry. I, I'm not confident to answer it properly. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Definitely, definitely plenty of flies. Yeah. So let, let's back up a little bit. Tell me about uh, tell me about your education and the pathway, the pathway you took in Australia to get, you know, from education back into agriculture. Okay, so well, I have actually always been in agriculture. As I said, mum and dad had the farm when I was seven. We ran beef cattle then, but we came from the west, so we were sort of central west around Longreach, which is uh, eight hundred mile off the coast. And it's a dry, a dry environment there. I think it probably was only 18 inches in your language of rain a year there as an average. Is that what you'd um, call the outback? Yeah, yeah. But it, I mean, there's further out. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a fair way out, but it's further out. Um, Mum and dad ran, you know, sheep back then. Uh, so there was merino wool operation plus some cattle. Um, I think dad preferred cattle. So when he bought the, the uh, farm, he was happier to run cattle than run sheep. And I certainly never had a love for sheep. You know, I, I was only a young kid when we did sheep operations, but I never had a real desire to run sheep. So I was more of a push for cattle. I then I did go to uh, Queensland Agricultural College at the time. It was called QAC, Queensland Agricultural College. So I did uh, an animal husbandry and a um, agricultural courses there. I then went and started working in the in the industry. I was a station hand for a while before I started buying and having my own properties. Um, so yeah, it it it's a journey through time, but I've always been in agriculture. And when I went uh, when I went from I suppose just being a, a station hand and having my own properties, I then started to venture into the agricultural side of farming and growing stuff. So. Um, little bit of push from the bank. You know, I borrowed a fair bit to buy my first property and they pretty much told me, oh, the only way you're going to make any payments is to run, is to uh, do cropping, which in hindsight, I probably disagree. <laughs> the amount of um, 
stress and 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 gambling that you do in agricultural <laughs> in Australia um, is yeah unless you've got irrigation it's it's a gamble every year I think uh, so probably the happiest day of my life is when I sold the, the farming equipment it was uh, one of those things so it wasn't in my blood to be a farmer uh, I did it for several years I think if I think about it, probably 20 years where I was doing some agricultural work um, and as I mentioned, I was a spray spray rig operator for ten of it. So uh, yeah, but once once we once I did the agricultural course, you know, grazing for profit, lots of things changed in my thinking. And probably the biggest one was don't work against nature. I think that was one of the biggest ones. Start working with it. What year was that that you went through the grazing for profit? Now that, that's through RCS Australia, which is kind of like ranching for profit australia yeah. division yeah exactly yeah terry mccoster was the head head man of the, the operation at that point um it was about 2003 i think so I'm, I'm, i'd be 20 years into the into the journey of uh, you know proper regen thinking um and then yeah gradual changes like you know no one ever does things straight overnight but i certainly went home and and made some major changes to my operation uh, simply on the back of some of the stuff I've learned, you know, straight away. And then every, every place and property I've operated since, um, I've done a full-blown fence and water before I did anything else. I just went straight into it hard because fencing and water is where the big changes come from. Yeah. I, I would definitely agree with that. Fencing and water is where you got to start. Yeah, yeah. So somebody says, well, wh what do I need to do with this? Where do I need to put my fence? I said, don't even worry about it. Just get your water set up and your water will kind of dictate, you know, where you put your fences at. That's right. Yeah. Yep. So it was, uh, it looks like it was about 15 years from your first trip through the grazing for profit course until you got, got away from the spraying and the tilling and, and went to do what you wanted to do. What was it like during that time? Was it, were you trying to struggle how to adapt some of the concepts in an existing operation? You just couldn't figure out how to make, make the operation you were on what you wanted? Um, in the farming side of it, it was, yeah, that was the biggest challenge. I mean, I started doing zero-till planting, so I'd already built myself a zero-till planter, which actually came from the, uh, the John Deere. Um, I had the single-disc John Deere um, units under an old combine, an old international combine. And it was an excellent machine to start on that journey of being able to trial these sort of things. So I used to go out into the stubble and just plant straight into it. Um, we, I don't know whether it's the same here, but we certainly have big, uh, what do you call, plant changes. So in our summer, we'll have certain plants that will grow strong and they'll literally go dormant in the winter. So we were able to sort of do a little bit of crop planting into dormant pasture, you might say, which worked quite nicely. Um, and that was what gave me the, uh, you know, the good gut feel that it was going to work. And then I started doing a little bit of biological work as well. Because I had the, the spray rig, I was able to go out and start doing a bit of biological work. And, and then I started seeing other changes, like stubble breakdown that I hadn't seen before. And, you know, you feed those microbes and all of a sudden, you know, life on the, on the soil level starts to change. Um, did a bio biodynamics course fairly early in, in the transition. And much as I haven't probably been a full-blown biodynamics person, I've certainly worked with not microbe you know, enhancement or helping microbes do what they're meant to do. 
um, as we've gone out a journey all the way along, I've just kept thinking we've got to work with the microbes, we've got to work with air plants, got to work with having good soil, um, you know, the, the root system being strong. And, and then, so after that, you just get moisture and sun, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, for sure. What, uh, what kind of crops were you growing? Um, right. So, number one was where I started, uh, probably was either cotton, wheat oats and barley probably they're the, the four major ones we do also have sorghum i think i think do you call it sorghum here the the red yeah red seeded one yeah so we had sorghum as well i mostly grew the sorghum as a, a more of a cover crop and a, and a fast grower um and and we had a, a silk sorghum or you call it i think it might be called johnson grass here um really fast growing really good for getting ground cover quickly and so I used those ones when I was doing the pasture cropping type stuff. Um, yeah, look, very similar. I think very similar grasses that, to what you have, but we, we you know, we we have uh, what is it, Bambatsi. We have um, in our new farm where we are now, Soteria. Um, purple pigeon grass used to be one as well. Um, yeah, look, all the different grasses. It's hard for me to remember. <laughs> Wait, I... I guess what I'm asking or what I'm wanting to know is were you planting, were you planting things in monoculture? Was it kind of the same thing every year? I mean, if, if we're talking about like small cereal grains, they're kind of all derivatives of cool season grass. So they're all going to kind of take the, you know, grow around the same time and kind of take the same things out of the soil. Um, something like, you know, a sorghum or a Johnson grass, that's more like a warm season type thing. Yeah. So were you, were you planting more monocultures or was it mixes and blends? In the in the full-blown farming system, yeah, it was monoculture. Absolutely. So we'd either do a wheat for the winter or, or a barley. Um, and as summer, as you mentioned, the sorghums were mostly the ones we'd grow. Yeah. So um, yeah, it was it was full-blown monoculture, that's for sure. It, it was only when I started to make some changes that I then uh, I used to I try. I think I trialed very early in the piece where I would put the winter seed as I planted my summer crop and see how it went. Obviously, none of that went well because we didn't have our soil right. <laughs> Do you think that when you get your soil better, you'll be able to cut back on the number of plantings and just plant like a more variety of stuff, you know, your cool season and your warm season at the same time? Yeah, I think look in the straight in the full blown cropping operation, you got to work. I think it is a lot longer progression to to better health in the soil than when we use a few animals in the system. That's for sure. That's what I saw anyway. It was really challenging to make bigger change quickly when we're in the full blown monoculture. You know, it was it was really hard to change. I, I used a few um, things like zeolite, which was for my phosphorus, slow release phosphorus. Um, I, I didn't I just stopped using urea straight away after I, I got the insight that that was going to hurt the, the biology. And I saw changes straight away there too. So some of the things we saw immediate change, but yeah, as, I, as I mentioned, it's pretty slow progress because I think we're coming from ground zero when we've come from monoculture, you know, full-blown agriculture, especially using lots of chemicals. I, I happily, quite quite happily tell the story that you know, people believe that Roundup, you can bathe your, you know, your baby, your babies in it, bath your babies. Sorry. And um, anyway, I had a, 
I had a uh, another contractor came on the farm one time and he had a tiny bit of Roundup, which was a diluted, you know, diluted um, mix, probably a hundred liters of it in the bottom of his tank, and he asked me if he could just dump it. So I got him to dump it where I didn't think it'd be too bad. It was near my fuel tank setup, and it was six years before I saw anything grow there again. So that gave me big insight. <laughs> That gave me huge insight into the damage of that chemical that's so-called got no residual and is, and is safe. It just is. It just isn't. So, yeah, that that and and seeing the big changes when I stopped using urea, um, going for long-term safe type fertilizers rather than the chemical-based ones. Yeah, you could see changes. You could see differences. Very cool. So. At any before 2018, when you were still on the farm and still kind of in that cropping system, did you start integrating livestock? Oh yeah, no, I was more into livestock than I was into farming. So I did have cattle all the time, and I'd started developing old farming country into full-blown cattle operation. And uh, my my transition went through using a plant called Lucina, which is a grazable tree, it's a legume tree and um, planted it just like row crop initially. And so I think we we're eight meters apart initially when I started doing this um, using the tree. It can grow into a tree, but if you manage it correctly, you keep it in like a shrub form and then you just allow or try and get plants between the tree rows. And so that was my, my transition out of uh, old uh, cropping country into animal you know, running animals and running them as best I could. I, I uh, actually put my fences in place straight away after planting the trees. I made it into rotational grazing system. And that's, yeah. I'm really sad that I don't own that property anymore because that was a really good, well-paying operation, utilising what you call uh, uh, feeders or we, we call them backgrounders. I, I'd go and buy animals, put them on, get so much weight on them and then take them off again. So, yeah. There was a powerful system, getting trees, grass, trying to balance it as best I could. Um, the tree, I think the tree could be between 23 and 30% protein, just depending on, on the growing time. So very like a lucin or, or your alfalfa in, in protein. So it was a good protein. And um, yeah, look, it was a great system. I really enjoyed transitioning into that. If you can make your cows eat trees that are 25 to 30% protein, you can put some pounds on. You definitely do. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely do. And don't worry, you didn't need to make them eat it. They loved it. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about, let, let's jump to 2018 and let's talk about when you bought the property or, or when you came to the property you're on, right? You didn't yep. buy it. You you got control over it. Um, I, I guess what I, what I, let, let's talk about land and, and, private property rights and what it's like to buy land and and what rights that gives you to do on the land because i don't think you y'all's i don't think it's like it is here i mean a lot of times here when you buy a piece of property you own the air above i mean technically you own the air above and you own the things below as well you know so if you find fossils in the ground they're yours if you find oil in the ground or gold in the ground it's yours it's not like that in australia is it no no, no, we are yeah, really regulated here. The rules say that we only have uh, the rights to the top four inches, I think it is. 
So it's literally very controlled. Um, but as we found going forward, that in truth, we don't have much control of anything. Um, as I mentioned before, I think it, it's lifestyle country that we're in now. And so agriculture is the lesser of the uh, uh, things that happen in our, in our valley. And we've probably got one of the bigger farms at 400 acres. But as we've gone forward, mum and dad actually paid what they call freehold title out on this farm way back when they bought it. So back in the 70s, they paid out the freehold title. So you, we were a lease sold, and then they went into a freehold um, operation. So it's a freehold property. Since then, the governments uh, and yeah, it's the state level governments seem to have um, found a way to take things out of our control, you might say. And they have put in, into place particularly uh, tree control measures so that people can't just take out trees. There was a big push for the um, carbon, you know, calculations as they want to call them. And so by restricting what farmers could do on their farms on taking out trees was giving them, you know, calculation of carbon capture. In doing so, they just put colours over our, if you just have a map and you put a colour over the map and you say, right, under that particular colour, you can't do certain operations. So that's the first level of control. So they can just come in and this is happening over freehold or leasehold. Doesn't matter where you are. Absolutely anywhere. Yeah. Okay. Can you can you explain the difference between freehold and leasehold? Um, yeah, pretty pretty straightforward. Leasehold, you pay a fee to the government, you know, for having the lease of the land. Uh, I think it's the same, you know, anywhere where you call it a lease, a lease or a tenement over something. Um, so yeah, you were paying a regular fee, and I think it was a ninety nine year lease. I don't think they offered any longer ones. They do offer a lot shorter ones, but that, that was the long one. Um, so when you pay out the freehold, you're effectively trying to, you know, you're paying those lease forward. So then you got the title as freehold, so you don't have to pay an ongoing fee and it's yours to operate as you wish. That's what, that's what it should be. So once you pay your freehold uh, or pay the lease out and become freehold, you should be able to do whatever you want on the farm. And by rights, the timber's yours, you know, what you do on the farm's yours, the water that flows and, and falls on, on your farm is yours. That's changing, as you mentioned earlier. That's changing all the time. Little things have come in, like uh, they've come in and said, right, if you've got a bore, um, it hasn't happened exactly yet everywhere in Queensland, but certainly New South Wales. If you have a bore, they'll start to say, right, well, anything you pump out now, that's our water and we want you to measure it and we'll charge you a fee. <laughs> when you say bore, you mean like a well, a hole in the ground. You guys you're call it water. A well. Yeah, you guys call it a well. Yeah. For a few seconds, I thought you were talking about the pig. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do. I, I've noticed that quite a lot, actually, the, the different terminology, and I have to remember to use yours. <laughs> uh, yeah, so a well, it, it, it's a hole in the ground we pour, you know, draw water out of. So, yeah, and all of a sudden they're starting to take control of that as well. They think that's theirs as well. Um, so monitoring, measuring, and, and charging a fee for it. Then, of course, the tree side of it is is the next big thing in my account. I, I get quite frustrated with authorities, you know, just taking stuff and, and, and telling you what you can and can't do. Well, trees are good. Cows are bad. I mean, well, yeah, unfortunately, there's been some big wigs in the world, you know, that, that are getting that message out there. And, I, you know, 
I shake my head every time, you know, when they show me a picture of a buddy, you know, an airport or, or a freeway that's eight lanes wide or, and then come and have a look at my farm and tell me my cows are bad. You know, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I really, really struggle <laughs> with that concept. <laughs> Here it would be like five different government agencies would all come out to meet you on your property and drive five different vehicles and then tell you you're polluting the environment. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Don't worry. I think it's similar here. <laughs> um, look, we, we've got, we're up against it from the green revolution and the carbon capture, you know, side of things. So we, as a, as a family farm, have, we're making a big effort to tell the story, same as you are with your podcast. We are trying to get the message out that, what we can do on our small patch, and if everybody adopted similar practice, we can all make a change and make a difference. So we do open the farm up for you know people to come on. We don't do it every month, just a day, and uh, and tell the story, tell what we're trying to do and why we're doing it. So maybe I should tell it here. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> when we went to the farm, um, I don't know whether that sun's in the background a bit much, but. When we went to the farm, Susie and I made the conscious decision that we wouldn't do a chemical, which immediately made it challenging, that is for sure. So we, we adopted uh, things like do more mulching, put mulch and stuff on the ground and allow nature to take care of it. And with the animal operation, do it chemical-free, injection-free. Now, that caused us the biggest grief. So when I went there, I went with my old thinking of buy someone else's animals, run them and put a few kilos on, then sell them again. I did that and I lost quite a few to the tick. We, we get high cattle tick populations there. It, it is rampant at times when the conditions are right, they just get slaughtered with them. So, yeah. you know, in the general operation, you go and put some chemical on, kill the tick. And then, of course, over time, you get tick resistance to the chemical and then you can't kill them. And so it's a big, you know, vicious circle. So we looked hard and we found an animal, the Nguni. So it's N-G-U-N-I, Nguni, South African breed. Okay. As being the highest, um, you know, resistance to parasites in the world. And we immediately bought bulls, pure bulls, and we bought a few Brahmin cows with uh, Nguni calves at foot and started our transition into Nguni cattle. We then, with the first cross, I had everything when I started because I was buying other and other people's animals. I had what we call the drought master. I had Brahman, I had Angus, I had Brangus, I had Shabrays. I had um, oh, almost every breed you could think of. <laughs> I had a speckled park, you know. Um, we had a cup of dairy cross. And we then put pure and goonie bulls over those cows as our transition into Nguni. And we were absolutely amazed at the fact that that first cross had very high resistance to the parasite straight away. So we took the big plunge and said, no more chemical. We just, everything that's in Nguni on our farm has not had any chemical, not at all. And we are literally in the highest parasite, you know, region that you could come across. So that was our first major change into working with nature, finding the animal that suited the environment. And then, of course, they're only a small animal. You know, they're a lot smaller frame, so, and they're colourful, really colourful. So going into the commercial market with those animals wasn't going to work. You know, they weren't feedlot entry 
type animals. You couldn't get them to that size and weight. They grow well, they grow just as quick, they just don't grow as big. So that's when we then made the decision we'll do paddock to plate. You know, there was some other reason behind that. One was we really disliked the uh, way the, uh, the yards, as in the, I think you call them the auction yards or, or the selling centres. Yeah. How they treated animals was just horrible. I, I had several animals went into that yard and I weigh everything at home and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but I was losing 9%. My worst was 15%. So you, you drop them in the day before, and by the time they sell, they'd lost 15% of their body weight. So you know that they're not getting treated very well. They are highly stressed as they're getting through this selling centre. I thought it was horrible. Um, so anyway, that was another push for us not to go there. We, we thought that's terrible. We, you know, This is putting animals through high stress, bad, bad, bad. <laughs> so that's when the paddock, the plate thing just came out. And we said, right, that's how we'll have to do it. Um, if we'd given it a bit more thought, maybe we wouldn't have. It's a lot of extra work. <laughs> <laughs> but it is rewarding. There's no doubt about that. It is rewarding. Um, so I'll quickly go through that story. So paddock to plate takes a lot of work, as I mentioned. So we had to get known, number one. So we had to go into the environment with our, you know, with our story, tell the story a bit, tell people what we're doing and why we're doing it and encouraging them to buy our product. We uh, do a farmer's market. We do an online selling. Uh, we do some retail through local shops. Same, I think the same as most people do when they do paddock to plate. And we're, look, we're very pleased about how we're going. Now I want to ask what the food police rules are like for doing paddock to plate. <laughs> okay, same, <laughs> probably the same as here in America. Uh, we have to go through a slaughterhouse, re, you know, registered slaughterhouse. Can't do on-farm kills with that, with that, you know, operation where we're going to sell to the public. From the slaughterhouse, they go to a butcher. They can't come home to us. They go straight to a butcher, and he then our butcher that we use processes in um, into packets that we sell as retail packets. So he will cut them up and package them exactly how we want. So we do you know, the little bit of on-selling type stuff like the sausages and patties and meatballs. Um, look, I think we're doing all the same sort of things that most people do. We do a bit of broth. Um, we have roasts. We have offal opera, you know, which is amazed us. We, I think we nearly make more out of offal now than we do the rest of the beast. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, we do a healthy hearty minch, which just goes out the door like nothing. It's got heart and liver. As, as well as the meat and the fat. I, um, I was just going to say, you know, yeah. when you mentioned the awful, I, that, that's an opportunity that so many direct-to-consumer guys are missing is, yeah. is doing some kind of ancestral primal blend, which is what a lot of us call it here in the States, when you put heart and liver in with the trim and, yeah. and the muscle meat and get a, get a good grind. Yeah. yeah. And that stuff sells like hotcakes. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, and look, we've been pleased with that because we were sort of driven by the by what the customer was telling us. Right at the very start, we had our butcher just do what he normally did and they were rejecting it. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, we, we had to go preservative-free, completely pre preservative-free, and then as, as we talked about, start utilising a lot of the offal as part of um, the good cell, the good healthy food. 
uh, high nutrient, you know, comes from the offal. And uh, yeah, it, it's working really well from that point of view. That is for sure. There's a lot of, you know, not necessarily speaking for experience, but I think that's a thing that a lot of guys just don't want back or don't want to deal with. Like, oh, they'll just check that box and they'll pay a hundred dollars for the awful disposal fee to get rid of the heart, liver, and lungs. When somebody that was a little smart would take that, what, I don't know, 30 pounds or so from heart, liver, lungs and blend that into your ground. And then yeah. you can, you know, then you can get almost 50% more for your ground beef. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you the other thing that, that annoys us is going through the slaughter system. Um, we can't get our hides back. We can't even get our hides back. They take the head, the horns, the hooves, the gut content uh, and, and uh, lung. They take the lung. They don't give us lung. So we get our heart, the liver, the kidney and the tail as our offal. That's as, that's as much as we can get. Um, and so they, yeah, they keep the heart, they keep the head, the horn, the hooves, and the hide and the gut content. We Is that a health and safety thing? Yeah, we, we're not allowed to grab that. Can't get. We actually asked for the hide back, and the man said it's not worth my time and money to do it because there's no value in hides currently, which also frustrates the hell out of me when you see so much plastics being used where where leather could otherwise be getting used. So yeah, I mean. And mankind's got a lot to answer for, but you know, maybe it'll transition slowly. <laughs> it seems like that it's the same situation with hides here. Can I get a hide back? Yes, but it's gonna be bloody in a in a trash bag, folded hmm. and bloody in a trash bag, and then I've got to do something with it. Okay, yeah. great. All the tanneries in the United States are shut down. I think there's maybe two tanneries in the entire country that are left. Yeah. Well, why did it, why did our tanneries shut down? Because everybody wants $25 an hour minimum wage. And we have this thing called the Environmental Protection Agency that made it really difficult to tan leather in the United States in an yeah. environmentally responsible way. Yeah. I mean, you can do it in an environmentally responsible way. It just takes a lot of labor. Or yeah. you can do it with a lot of chemicals, which is really nasty. And yeah. we can't do that here. So all of our leather making is is outsourced. I mean, if you want to if you want to get leather made, you just need to have a container load of hides. That, I mean, that's all it takes. You just have to do it in container load lots. Yeah, yeah, and and that's the thing. You know, you talk about it being not environmentally friendly doing chemical tanning, and absolutely, but there's other ways. Um, but then on the other hand, what's it take from the uh, environment side to make a plastic coating instead of the leather? I I, I just get bamboozled that we we don't think through the whole process you know there'll be a oil-based chemical plastic um operation that that's replacing it. it's cheaper because a lot of it can be done purely with machines and as you say not labor so that's the difference it's our labor costs yeah so anyway i might, probably should continue to talk a little bit more about the inguni that we transitioned into because uh it eats well off grass they do well on poor quality grass, number one, and they eat well off grass. So that was the other part of making the whole thing come together was having that animal that suits that grass-fed operation. So we, we're telling our story quite strongly about how good this little animal does make grass-fed. So, I, And it's a great point about the Naguni being small frame forage efficient. And, you know, personally, I like my Corianic cows. I think they're 
you know, small frame, forage efficient, kind of like almost an African, almost an American equivalent to the African Nagoonie. They were let run wild for 400 years, natural selection, everything. Yeah. Um, but I think that there's, I think there's a really excellent reservoir of bovine genetics in Africa, especially for those of us that are looking for animals that are disease resistant, pest resistant, and will finish and will will put on weight and be fertile on grass. Okay. Yeah. I don't care if it's a 900 pound cow, if she's going to be, you know, 90% fertile every year on grass and she never needs to have a needle. She never needs to have any fly dope, yeah. never needs anything. Yeah. I don't care if she weighs 900 pounds. I can just have a whole bunch of them. Yeah. And, and I, I'm really strong in saying to people, you don't have to have the animal I've got. You've just got to find the one that suits your environment. That's, that's where I come from. You know, have a discussion. Like I see a lot of Angus and, you know, a little bit of Wagyu, but mostly Angus running around on this, on the pastures over here and nothing wrong with it. If, if they're good for this environment. Yeah. It's colder. Sure. You know, it's, you've got to go for those things that work in your environment, but come back to understanding that you don't want to have to then turn around and try and help them survive in this environment putting chemicals on them every day or injecting them because they they can't survive some of the pests or diseases that run, run through so you know that's my biggest push is always tell people work with the environment find the animal that suits it yes i'm 100 percent with that um and you know that i i kind of wanted to circle back to your comment about stockmanship at the sale barn or you know auction center yep to be fair, those guys have a difficult job to do. They've got a lot of volume to run through in a very, you know, in, in a short amount of time as possible. And I don't like to go. Like, it, if I need to buy something from the auction, I pick up a phone, I tell an order buyer what I want, and I hang up the phone and I go about my day. Will I go sit at a sale barn all day? Yeah, I, I, I have. I've done it. It's kind of fun especially if you go with, you know, a couple friends and, you know, you're not just there to buy cow, you kind of make a social event out of it. But the stockmanship there and, and a lot of times at the feedlot, I think it leaves a lot to be desired. Yeah, you're right. But that's, but that's a symptom of the overall system, right? We've got to have so many animals go through this, go through this sale ring so fast because yeah. every person that's standing there costs money every second they're standing there. And the faster you get those cows through, the faster you send everybody home, the lower your labor bill is. I mean, and th that's, that's not the way it works at a feedlot, I'm sure, but they need to maximize the amount of cattle that that one pen rider, that one cowboy out in the feedlot is responsible for. Yeah. Because, but let, let, let me go know. ahead take it over here and say there was um, places I, I bought a lot out of the yards when I was being a, a effectively a backgrounder, I was doing a lot of purchasing um, out, of the, out of the sale yards. And some of those sale yards, the, the losses would only be probably 5%, which is just normal. You take an animal off feed and he's going to probably drop 5%. So there's good operators and bad ones. So I, I take, I don't give, you know, I don't allow my thinking to say that the ones that will take 10 to 15% off my animals 
they shouldn't be allowed. You know, there should be something done about it. And we know through doing the low stress top handling that that it can something can be done and they can change the way they operate. And luckily, you know, our low stress stock handling guys here in Australia have managed to get into quite a big lot of our feedlots. They've managed to get in there and understand that that the way they handle an animal will make a huge difference. So I I don't give them anybody, you know, leeway when it comes to handling. There is good ways and there's bad ways. So I would like to think that yes, even if you're handling numbers, lots of numbers, you can still do it well and not make that animal go through huge stress. So just, just leaving the farm is going to stress it, that's for sure, but you can reduce the amount by doing the right sort of operations. I I agree 100% that, you know, that no matter what we're talking about, whether we're talking about, you know, sale barn or feedlot, we could probably go in there and in a short amount of time, find ways to help reduce animal stress. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And we you know like we, we we operate as best we can. I mean, at times you know that you get certain animals that have got a flight zone that's quite quite large and you just can't you can't take all the stress off everything. And sometimes you've got animals that have got such a small body, you know, you can you literally got to bang them on the bum to make them move. But yeah, you, you adapt to all that to try and make the best of the operation, that is for sure. Yeah. And and look, we we adopt those practices, we try and make sure that there's there's the stress that can happen through uh, human interaction is reduced as much as we possibly can. Yep. Yep. It's on us to help manage the stress loads in the cows. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I got to go recycle a little bit of coffee. So oh, yeah. It's about that time of day. So I'll be right back in just a minute. I'll, I'll do the same. <laughs> back into it. Well, I'm drinking coffee. Are you, are you drinking coffee or are you uh, on tea? Had, had my coffee. Yeah, had my coffee. I'm on water now. <laughs> okay. So we were talking about your cattle, your Inguni cattle. And I was thinking about what some of my other friends have said about the stock that they've seen in Australia. And I got kind of two wildly different opinions from Josh and Gwen and, and from Hobbs. Right. Um, and I think that that was a lot to do with the operations that they saw. So where Josh and Gwen, where they were on, um, I'm probably going to screw this up. But it was some kind of, it was, it was like an all natural organic type operation. Mm -hmm. And he said that they had just all their cows were just all mixed up. Like there was a little bit of everything out there and they all looked good. Um, and Hobbs seemed to indicate that he didn't see a whole lot of animals that he thought were well adapted to the environment. Um, so, what are most of the neighbors like? The neighbors you associate with or neighbors you share fence lines with what what kind of cattle do they have and and how do they take care of them look in australia i think we might have more diversity in our in our breed type than you do but um like right next door to me i've got a guy that runs uh charbrays and and, and brangus um another lot just up the road have got a purely speckle park and I think it's a gene pool type operation. So, and I shake my head every time I drive past because they're fully fed animals like a feedlot, but they're going for genetics. So they're, they're doing AI programs or, or embryo programs and those sort of things. The next guy along has got what they call the drought master. And it's the, probably the more common breed in our, our environment, the coastal environment. Brahmins and drought masters tend to have that bit better um, resistance to the, the parasites. 
So they are one of the more common types. What what makes up a drought master? Um, don't quote me, but it, it, it's a it's a Brahmin and Shorthorn um, and a Red Sindhi or some bit of African. Yeah, it's a, it's a mix of the Brahmin. Yeah, pretty sure it's Shorthorn Brahmin and one of the Africans. Okay. Not sure which one. Yeah. Well, Brahmin Shorthorn plus a little bit of African sounds. Yeah. Kind of sounds like uh gosh, what am I thinking of? Uh South Poles and Red Poles here here in America, some breeds that right. have been developed. And you know, so let's just say, you know, the shorthorn brings a lot of good dual purpose. Does. Yep. Yep. You know, and the shorthorn it, it turns up in a lot of the crossbreds, um, you know, in Australia, that's for sure. A little splash of shorthorn probably gives them that fertility. Um, and mothers, you know, the ability to good make good milk and those sort of things. But yeah, and probably get a bunch of, probably get some heat and disease resistance. Yeah, not from the Brahmin. Popular, yeah, the Brahmin definitely gives that uh, parasite resistance and ability to to do well on tough conditions. But I don't know whether you've sort of know that the Brahmin came. The Brahmins they brought to Australia were were tended to be too much adapted to that sort of thing. So their systems would shut down on, on productivity as in not have calves every year if it was a tough year. So their, their fertility brought some bad results for people into herds for a while. I think now that the Brahmin breeders have managed to turn that around and they're a lot better than they used to be, but they're still a big animal. So, you know, maybe not totally ideal for, for a tough environment. So having to maintain a big frame when things get hard, no matter how good they are, it still gets hard, doesn't it? <laughs> Yeah, it, I hear the same thing from some of my Brahmin breeder friends in the, here in this country that a lot of people don't really like to talk about the fertility yeah. in the Brahmin herd. Yeah, yeah, because it's sometimes not less than stellar. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I mean that's something that we've had we've put a big focus on too. Like we're such a small operation. If we had, let's say, we had a hundred cows that we're going to breed every year, and only eighty of them gave us calves, that's not a terribly you know, efficient way of you doing your, your operation so if we can get ourselves up to 90 you know 90 let's say 95 or above as as a carving percentage then that's a that's a lot better operation on a small place than having ones that aren't giving you those calves um yes you can turn around and sell them as a fat animal but that's you know when you're trying to do breeding you want them to breed and and the ingunis well known for breeding you know no matter how how tough the conditions are they keep going. So, yep. You know, and up that, you know, that's always a good question. Like I like 90%. You know, if my heifers are my, if my heifers are at 90%, I'm pretty happy about that. Considering what I spend to get them there. The ca yeah. If my cows are at 80, I can kind of deal with that because I know what I spent to get them there. And that was also kind of, kind of factored in. But when we're talking about, you know, any kind of business with livestock, the number one thing is fertility. Like fertility has to drive the bus. Oh, absolutely. If you yeah. can't manage that replacement rate, uh, it, it, it's not good. No. And, you know, 80% to some to some operations, that's too low. I admit that's kind of on the low side, but I'm also talking about sale, cows that I bought from the sale barn as old cows that I don't know anything about. Yeah. And yeah. they're this productive in my system. Okay, they can stay. 
and their daughters and their daughters' daughters are going to be the real, the real gems. I think. Yeah, yeah. So we we do a uh, you know we do a program where effectively I'm joining the heifers as soon as they'll join. Like I don't hold them away from the bulls. I've, I've probably had what would I say? Need to be yeah two animals out of the out of each year that have calved too soon, so they're too small. Um, but other than that, these you know if a heifer calves when she's 17 to 18 months old, I'm not afraid of that. I think that's all right with these and goonies. And, you know, I've got one cow that did that for me. She's only a half bred, so she's Brahmin and Nguni cross. She carved at 17 months and had a calf every year since. And, and she continued to get better in her own body condition, you know, as we've gone along. That's the sort of cow I'm looking for. One that can do it every year, maintain her own body weight and give me a good calf somewhere between probably 180 to 200 kilos at, at eight, eight to 10 months. So, yeah. It's a recipe for a moneymaker. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Our challenge has been more, more the fact that we now need to grow them to uh, a finish condition. And that then is, is another part of our story that I can tell quite confidently because we've grown quite well with our, our beef sales through the, uh, the, the, the shop side of our business. I've actually gone out, had to buy other people's animals. And of course, my uh, my reach is only going to get me either Droughtmaster or Charbray or Brangus or something like that because I don't want to go too far to get them. And I put those ones that I bought in the same paddock as my boys and they probably come in, yeah, maybe a tad heavier, that's for sure, at 24 to 26 months is when we normally like to kill them but their, their finish is just nowhere near that, you know, like a Brangus or a, a Charbray particularly, let's say we've got a, a, a four mil is what, the way we measure four mil at the P8 site of fat. Okay. My Nguni will probably have eight to nine mil at the same age, same weight, same conditions. So, and, and, you know, they're a little bit better um, marbling as well. That's for sure. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm seeing that the Nguni is giving us what we're looking for from that point of view. Um, they're certainly giving it to us from the point of view of, of managing them from chemical and all the rest. And, yeah, I don't know. I haven't found something that I can say is bad about them. <laughs> I, I'm wondering how the bought-in animals eat, like eating experience, flavor and, and tenderness compared to your home-raised. I will say we've definitely got some great feedback from the Nguni cross cattle. That is for sure. The flavor, they do say people have come back to us and said, yeah, the flavor is, is definitely a nice flavor. It's better. It's different. Um, you've got to be probably a bit of a connoisseur to pick it up a lot, but definitely we've got a lot of good feedback. Color's good. Fat, even the fat is, you know, reasonably white. It's not, not on an older cow, it'll be yellow, but on our two-year-olds, it's normally pretty white. Um, so look, yeah, eating experiences definitely come back as good from our, from the customers. Yeah. Okay. I've, I've kind of, I've been kind of thinking the last few minutes about, about genetics and the genetics that are available in Australia, <clears throat> excuse me. And, you know, a lot of the problem I, I have with Angus in this country is single trait selection. They've been breeding Angus for, I don't know, 50, 60 years to gain in the feedlot. Yep. If you're one of those guys that make money on Angus in a feedlot eating corn and soybeans, good on you. 
keep doing it. I'm not that guy. But what I, what I feel has happened is, you know, we, we push these single trait selections, gain on corn, feed efficiency, pounds in the pounds a day in a feedlot. You know, that's what, that's what guys have been pushing, pushing their cow herds towards. So I kind of feel like we've been pushing that so far, so hard for so long that we've ended up with animals that can't succeed outside of that environment that are barely, that are barely able to not barely able that just kind of survive and exist in the pasture until they get to that environment. And then that's where they really start putting on the pounds. And we've gone completely the wrong way. Yeah. Can I give you a, give you an example of in my thinking that, that's similar to that. And that's in the uh, uh, monoculture world of, of cropping. We've had um, what do you call plant scientists working year after year, tirelessly trying to give us more yield out of our plants. Now, when I was in the cropping game, I, I grew wheat, and I grew sorghum, and I grew you know barley and all the rest. But sorghum was probably the one that gave me the insight to the fact that the poor old plant scientists forgot the the fundamentals. So we got these these varieties that they're selling to us, saying it'll it'll yield you know five or six percent better than any other crop that you've grown before. Well, I grew some of those crops. And I had pretty pretty reasonable soils. It was um, easy to grow them. And <clears throat> one of those crops went well. We got good rain. It got a full head of, uh, of, of grain and fell over. It literally fell over. So if I had, let's say I had a, a what we call a ton, ton and a half um, in the head per acre, and it fell over. Right beside it, same year, same season, I grew a forage crop. Now that forage crop, because of the same year, same season, same good growing conditions, grew up to 11, nearly 12 foot tall. And it had a ton and a half of grain in its head. It didn't fall over. It, it stood up there tall in, you know, off the same environment and didn't fall over. So I say to myself, what's the poor old scientist done to make the plant so weak that it couldn't support that ton and a half in the head? plant right beside it, 11 foot tall, happily stood up there with a ton and a half of grain in its head. So that's the, the simple things of focusing on, on one aspect of reproduction mm -hmm. and forgetting the rest and allowing, you know, you're taking away its ability to survive in nature. So, I like that. I, I think that's a great point, taking away its ability to survive in nature. And, you know, when we an example of that to me is, you know, on our crop acres. Okay, well, we need to go out and spray this herbicide to prevent all the weeds. Then we need to spray this pesticide to prevent this one little bug. Then we need to spray this fungicide to prevent this one fungus that's a problem. But we're completely ignoring the 100 beneficial plants, the 100 beneficial insects, and the possibly hundreds of beneficial mycorrhizal fungi that are all living in the soil, helping plants communicate and share nutrients and share resources with each other. It, it just, science wants to reduce everything, take away all the variables. And I get that, but nature in a system of whether you're growing a plant or growing a cow, nature is far too beautiful and complex 
to remove all the variables from. Yeah, absolutely. And look, being traveling in this good country of yours and, and understanding that nature can be tough, you know, there's some pretty tough parts of nature and, you know, trying to run a cow where you get six or seven feet of snow, I, I can't get my head around that. I, just <laughs> I mean, I've been lis listening to some really good podcasts and, and, and hearing that there is some great farmers managing now to, to leave their animals out in pasture, even in the cold conditions. But, you know, that that's a hell of a bloody tough environment that nature's putting in front of you. So, you know, your question, do you, or should you even be trying to do it? I don't know. <laughs> well, let's be fair. There's a lot of people in this country that can't imagine ranching with enough flies to literally fly off with a cow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. We all got our different challenges. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So let, let's talk about this trip you're on. It's not just a vacation, is it? No, well, when we when we decided to come over, number one push was to have a white Christmas, and you guys haven't haven't yet done that for us particularly. I think you can see a little bit of snow in the background here, but we're at uh, Mammoth Lakes currently. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, currently. And and last year we were told like there was 15 feet of snow, so <laughs> you can't, can't quite fathom it. But no, not a lot of snow just yet. But that was the push for us to come here was to have a white Christmas. But because we're farmers and we're really interested in the regen uh, world, I wanted to see what's happening here in your country. <sighs> Probably been disappointed that there's not a lot yet. Um, we found some good farmers, and that's for sure, and they're doing doing the you know the great job. Uh, I'll mention a couple. So we had Lauren over at Stemple Creek. Um, I love that guy. Good friend. Oh, yeah. He was so good to us. That was really, really fun seeing his operation and, and what he's up to. Uh, we then went up to Jay Rush at um, at Fern, Ferndale. And, yeah, once again, doing a fabulous job. Um, the Alexandra family farms, they've, um, you know, the organic guys, they're doing a fabulous job. And, look, we've, we've met some great farmers here, that's for sure. But when I was doing my searching, I couldn't find very many. It was it's really tough. <laughs> and when we drive around, I can see I'm not seeing too many either. <laughs> yeah. It does. It it seems like there's not very many of us, you know, in the regenerative side of, of things. But then again, at the same time, when we go to like our conferences is like getting ready to get kicked off. Like we yep. roll into January and like for three or four weeks, there's like, almost two events every week for a right. month, month and a half. And it's, it's pretty cool. And it's, I guess what I'm saying is like uh, soil health use the next one coming up and it's in almost three weeks and there'll be five to 600 people there. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. I don't know. I'll try to find out this year. I'd hope there's like half producers. Then a week after there's another great one called no till on the plains. That's probably another half producers we're out there and maybe the, maybe the rate of uptake is a little slower here in America yeah. or, or maybe it just seems that way. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like I can be, I can drive around my community over the last three years and I can point out people that have made changes. Yeah. Yeah. Move in the right direction. Yeah. I was talking to Dave Pratt briefly, and um, he was saying a lot of lot of the uh, regen work's been done in your central area rather than on the western coast. 
probably even East Coast is way better than the West Coast. So I'm probably being unfair by saying I haven't found a lot. No doubt you have got, you know, quite a lot of transition. And, you know, we're all excited to see, you know, people moving, even in the smallest way, just moving towards, you know, helping nature, working with nature. When I think of California, I mean, and and I know better, <laughs> and I know better, there's a lot of cows in California. I mean, it, it's not like they're shipping beef over the Rockies to feed LA and San Francisco, okay? They'll feed, they'll, they'll haul a lot of corn over the Rockies to feed cows in California so they can yeah. feed people in, you know, San Francisco and LA. But when I think of agriculture in California, the thing I mostly think about is vegetables in the Central Valley. And yeah, it seemed like a lot of tree crop up, up um, sort of north of San Fran as well. Lots of tree crops. Yeah. Oh, growing walnuts and almonds in a desert using irrigation water doesn't make sense. <laughs> it just, I'll just leave it there. It doesn't make sense. I think that some of those guys 20 years ago when they planted their almond trees, they knew there was going to be a water crisis coming. And if they said, hey, I've been working on my almond grove for 20 years yeah. and it's about ready to pay off. You can't make me tear out these billions of dollars worth of trees that I've invested 20 years in that are almost ready to come to crop. I, I think there's some of that going on. Um, but then again, my whole take on water rights in the, in, in the West, as far as irrigation and taking out of rivers, I try to shut up about it. Yeah. Well, I'm, I, I don't know. We we don't have a lot of water in Australia. That's our biggest limiting factor is our our water. Uh, we I come here and I just shake my head at the amount of water that you guys have got. Surface water, underground, obviously, but I'm not seeing very you know conscientious use use of that water. When I see like you just mentioned, you know, growing in in a desert, like flood irrigating, <laughs> in a that makes no sense to me, but that's what they do. You know, I thought they must have been rice paddies because <laughs> they were just flood irrigating. But you got, you know, when you've got water, you've got quite a lot of it. There's no doubt about that. We, we don't have that. So we've got to be a lot more moisture conscious and um, and and realise that every scrap of water we got is really precious. So, uh, and, that's, and that's probably where I started to really understand the differences that our, that our regen function and our operation will make the difference because in a pasture operation storing more moisture in that top four to six inches of, of your soil makes a huge difference just unbelievable difference uh, even just this drought that I was telling you about that we've come out of um, you know a full 12 months of having really low rainfall we were still growing grass you know at, at our farm and we're only three and a bit years into our rotational style operation it, it had already made a difference. You know, we'd, we'd made it. Looking at the other people around us, they were down like it was better than a bowling green. It was shorter than bowling greens everywhere around us. Um, so, yeah, we felt comfortable that it, it was making a big difference in storing a bit of carbon in the ground and storing that moisture there on your farm. Um, big, big difference. Yep. Yeah, I'd, and I'll definitely, you know, I would definitely back that up. That, and it, I guess right now my brain is almost seized up, you know, I'm trying to balance, you know, water usage. You know, we get, we have to be so efficient with trying to catch our rain and store our rain in our soil 
as as basically grass farmers we're trying to turn you know in the business of taking sunshine turning it into grass and taking that grass and cycling it into edible protein absolutely and every extra gallon of water that we can catch and store in our soil is drought insurance for later down the line or just extra uh, extra production in truth you know it comes for both so you know, you've talked about the drought that you're in for about 12 months and I'm fortunate that this year was kind of the end of a drought for me. Um, at the end of May, beginning of June, um, our National Weather Service, they classified drought from D0 to D4. Okay, D4 being the worst, D0 being really not bad. Right. Five out of 10 years, we're kind of in D0 drought, D0, D1, whatever. It's kind of normal, normal fact of life that drought exists. We went from, we set the record, like our, our little region where our weather, weather offices set the record that we had went from D4 to D0 faster than they've ever seen. Like, oh, it, right. to, the rain we got in May and June was just tremendous. Yep. You go a little farther north, they didn't get it. You go a little farther east, they didn't get it. You go about an hour and a half south, they didn't get it. So we were, we caught some good timely rains. And talk about like getting depressed, not watching your grass grow. Yeah. So, all, all there. <laughs> yeah. So in 2022, it was dry. I had some grass growth. Everything quit early. Okay. That's fine. We're coming into 2023. Like I had a rain in July of 22, yep. like the middle of July, 22. From I think July 16th to May 15th, 2023, we had like, I don't know, maybe maybe three inches of rain total, just a couple little showers here and there. Normally things green up here between the 8th and the 20th of April. Right. May 1st, there was nothing green. May 7th, nothing. May 15th, there was nothing. May 21st, there was nothing. It was brown. Yep. And then it starts to rain. And then 45 days later, I'm in a paradise of seven foot tall grass. Yeah. It's just, it's incredible how fast it can change. But watching some of the neighbors, I'll say most of my neighbors are pretty decent. They have, yep. they have some sort of rotation system. You got to get, you know, a couple properties away before things get really bad. And um, yeah, there's a couple of them that I drive by pretty often that have looked like, what'd you say? A, a football pitch or yeah, bowling, well, green? No, bowling, bowling green, <laughs> bowling green. Yeah. I can imagine that. I, I'd say a pool table. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> yep. Yep. There's still some of the neighbor's places that look like pool tables and they yep. haven't taken the cattle off of them for yep. years. Yep. We've got them too. <laughs> I've um. I had a one particular neighbour that I used as a, as an example to um, anybody that was willing to listen and look. We'd been through that year where we had 3,000 3, mils, you know, or three metres of rain for the 12-month period. And, we, you know, we were as wet as wet as wet. You know, we were sloppy wet. My cattle were literally walking in wet wet conditions from January through to November without a, without a breakup. This guy that doesn't particularly manage very well still had short grass at the end of that period, just didn't go anywhere. 
And this is because of all this management from the years before. So then we came out of that wet season and went into this dry one. And oh my God, those poor animals. They went, you know, it went down to that bowling green and he still had the same cows on there. And so they just kept dropping body condition. And I don't know whether you guys have got, uh, the regulators have got onto us over here where we can't truck anything that's not fit for trucking. And um, so if, the, if an animal gets too poor, the truck driver's literally got to make that decision and say, no, mate, I can't load that on. So people get stuck with the fact that they can't transport poor animals. So obviously, you know, you've, you've forced to feed or you're forced to shoot, you know, one of the two. Um, or euthanasia is a better word. And, and I reckon there was a lot of people got themselves to that stage out of this last dry patch that we got because they just didn't have any recovery during even the best conditions. Okay. I, I don't think I've ever, I can ever recall of hearing a truck driver refuse to load an animal. So do you have to have uh, regulation for it? Because we do now. It was put through our um, agricultural industry groups where, yeah, uh, unhealthy, like injured animal, unhealthy, you know, ones that are not fit for transport have literally not got to get on that transport. But here in Kansas where I am, there's we don't even do brand inspection. Like there's cow police don't exist here. Right. Um, in Nebraska, just north of me and, you know, some of the northern states, their brand inspection states are a little bit tighter. They've got brand inspectors that go around the sale barns. Um, but really, there are, there really isn't anything like the cow police to tell me that I can't move that animal. Um, and and I'm, I'm, I was just trying to think of, you know, some, you know, some circumstances that I'm aware of where that maybe would have come into play. So, uh, couple years ago we had a heifer get her leg get a back leg broke in the pasture yeah well little small heifer big bull tried to mount her whatever it's going to happen every once in a while every couple of years i mean it's a great looking animal she was probably 750 800 pounds had a pretty good fat coat on her she went to the locker with a broken leg and yep. got packed with from what i'm hearing that you couldn't do that in australia uh, not now used to happen but not so, now so if you yeah. had an animal break a leg you'd either have to let them live call a vet or shoot them you couldn't take them and have them slaughtered to save the meat pretty much the option you're up against now you could do i suppose you could do a private kilo on farm and, and put it in your own freezer but that would be your only options yeah now um how's animal tracking and traceability done uh, yeah, well, we our um, organisations, ML, MLA, Meat and Livestock Australia, put into place some many, I'm thinking over 20 years ago, where we had to put a NLIS or, or live, um, you know, it's a, it's a tracking device in the ear. Um, and we've had to follow that. It's, it's a cost to producers. It, they put it on us right from the start. So we have to buy these tags. Anything leaving our farm has to have that identification. And uh, it's supposedly about tracking. It's about biodiversity. Uh, it's not about ownership. It's not like a brand on the rump or, or you know, a brand as such. It's, it's literally about tracking that animal and where it is and where it's come from. 
And so, yes, it's it's in place and it's it's a law that you've got to do that. You have to register your property for a, a number, a PIC, as they call it, property identification number. And <clears throat> any one time the, the authorities can jump online, have a look and see what's on your farm. The, I mean, it's a good idea. I, I've found lots of flaws in the system, as, as you do. And probably the biggest one is too many authorities are getting involved. Like we've got three different levels of authorities that they work with. One to do the, the property part and one to do the actual NIS management. And, and the other ones, I'm not quite sure why they're even there, but it's a bit of a bringing the two together. Um, so, yeah, anytime we move an animal, we, we meant to get a, a piece of paper or now it's mostly digital as a movement um, which uh, you know effectively moves it from your property to wherever it's going, and that number gets transferred in a digital form to where it now is. If it's working right, yeah, they've got great traceability, and it's a good thing. On the other hand, the fact that they pushed all the cost to the producer is the you know the challenging part, and and having to identify or have a registration for biodiversity and for the tra traceability. And us having to pay that cost is where I think it's a little bit rude. I think the industry should have, or governments should have probably been covering that. Well, if government pays it, they just raise your taxes. <laughs> <laughs> and you pay yeah. for it anyway. I wouldn't mind sharing that that, that cost. Eh? <laughs> I mean, I pay my taxes as well. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. So what are... What do you, what have you learned on your trip so far? Well, we probably covered some of it. I mean, I, I, I probably struggled to really understand all the different things that, that uh, are happening. Number one, I didn't see a lot of lush, solid pastures like I know we see in our country. I saw a lot of short, dense pastures, and that's probably due to the climate that you guys operate in, you know, it's... cold, dry, you know, coming from dry going into cold and wet over here in the West. Um, no doubt the East of, of America is similar to our East. It might not be the same. But um, that and then, of course, the amount of feed that is transported around to maintain animals in these other environments. You know, we get, we do not have big dairies like you guys have got where they have, they're effectively like a feedlot where the animals don't get off of concrete. I mean, I, I, uh, you know, I get disappointed to see that sort of operation. Um, yeah, they're producing milk, but what? How good's the milk? <laughs> well, okay. Tell me about what compare. Like, can you just contrast that real quick to the dairy industry in Australia? Uh, look, predominantly the dairy industry uses uses grain when the animal comes to the barn for milking, um, but we generally go back on grass. I think you would find there's a lot more grass fed dairy cows in Australia than there are here in America. And um, and you see it in the colour of the milk. You know, our milk is a, is a darker, yellower um, colour than your very, very white milk that I'm seeing here. And we've been trying to buy real cream and it's, it's almost impossible. You know, Alexander's Farm is the only ones that we've found, which is organic and nice and yellow and, you know, proper yummy cream. Um, I could quickly tell you that story. We, we transitioned from using milk because I got prostate cancer. And I was told that in milk, there's a, a product called casein, 
and it's a it's a cancer feeder. So I went away from the from milk and went to cream only. And so now we we, we chase cream. Yeah, we want good cream. Um, and so yeah, it's been a challenge here to buy real cream. You know, you've got your half and half, and it's still a white, runny, almost like our milk. So there's some differences. <laughs> okay, I I'm with you 100. I put. I mean, I'm going to admit this and I know I'm going to catch hell for this. <laughs> so we generally go to Dylan's, which is a part of Kroger Nash, big national chain. And that's where we buy our heavy whipping cream Yeah, to put in our coffee. Cause I can't, I don't want to put, I'm not going to put their store brand milk in my coffee. Like, so, but I will put, their heavy whipping cream, their great value brand, heavy whipping cream or not great value, whatever their store brand, heavy whipping cream in my coffee, because it's the most delicious way to drink coffee. And if you're not putting heavy whipping cream in your coffee, y'all go throw that coffee, make crap in the garbage and go find some real heavy whipping cream. And you will have a coffee experience like you've never had before. It is the best shit ever. Yeah. Well, we don't, I don't, um, I used to put sweetener in, you know, my coffee, but you get a good cream. It's sweet in itself. It's amazing that that you know that sweetness that the cream can give. Yeah. <laughs> so as much as I hate buying cream from the store, I'd much rather buy it from my friend that runs a dairy. Yeah. <laughs> Lloyd, I love you, but I can't pay over almost four times for the cream that I can get at the grocery store because I we go through a, a lot. I mean, well, I'm, I'm going to give. I think I'll wrap you over the knuckles there myself. Brian, <laughs> when, when you buy the good product, you don't need much of it. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> I, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's, also, there's also a little convenience factor in there. The dairy's an hour and a half and the grocery yeah. store's 35 minutes. So. Oh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm only being silly. <laughs> well, I mean, we, we all have to make a few sacrifices here and there. Yeah. Um, couple of, couple other things I want to know about. Uh, let's talk about your your paddock to plate system and your mushroom production. How, whose idea was it to get off and grow mushrooms? Right. So my wife's probably got to take the the uh, kudos for that. Um, we wanted to have another enterprise on the farm, and being being now in our sixties, we weren't looking for a lot of. Uh, heavy extra work, you might say. So her her initial push um, was for the fact that they'd psilocytum, you know, the, the health benefit mushrooms. The magic Basically, mushrooms. Yeah, mate, let's call them magic, yeah. Um, regulation pretty much put a stop to that. You know, we, we're not allowed to without huge amount of regulation. It's slowly changing because they are, you know, in the Western world starting to see that there is some great benefits. So we still wanted to do it. So we started with the uh, edible mushrooms. So oyster mushroom um, was our first and most, you know, big push. Selling directly to restaurants for that particular product. And then we also did the lion's mane mushroom. Very interesting looking mushroom. Does actually look like a brain. And it is brain food. It, it's got... It's really well known for as a brain food, and luckily scientists now are getting on board with doing some testing. And once we get the papers, we'll be able to, you know, happily tell people that that's exactly what it's good for. 
we, we know it is because Chinese and, you know, that uh, Eastern world have used it for thousands of years, knowing the benefits. Uh, we're now also going into, um, uh, what's the other, reishi. Reishi is the next one. Only just recently started growing that as well. It's meant to be more of a relaxant sort of muscle, um, relaxant type mushroom. So, yeah, we, we, we're dabbling with both edible and, and good, you know, healthy mushrooms. It's a extra enterprise on the farm that gives a good turnover, very quick turnover from go to woe on a mushroom. Um, yeah, oh, got my, my wife came over to give me some info. <laughs> <I got down. laughs> my brain doesn't think that quick anymore. <laughs> We've got uh, about an eight-week turnaround with mushroom. So you put your substrate down, uh, put some... Um, uh, what we call a grain spawn in and uh, the mycelium will grow over a period of about five, four to four to five weeks and then you can take it across to the fruiting room and allow the mushroom to actually grow. So it's a pretty quick turnaround uh, product. Uh, we set up two 40-foot um, shipping containers, uh, insulated shipping containers, put the whole system in so you've got total climate control. You've got your heat, your light, your oxygen level and your humidity all controlled so that you get your maximum growing conditions. Now, all these mushrooms that we grow grow on wood. So we use um, sawdust as our substrate. So we use both a, a hardwood sawdust and a pine sawdust in uh, as a substrate. That then gets turned around and used as uh, compost back on the farm. Or I do sell a bit of it to um, local community groups and and good farmer, what do you call them? Gardeners, <laughs> not farmers so much, gardeners, yeah. Um, so the only throwaway out of the mushroom business is the plastic bag that we grow it in. Everything else is, is you know, is used, yeah. Sing, if we really wanted to do something about reducing our oil consumption, we'd ban single-use plastics. Yeah, <laughs> don't worry, we've done a lot of hard work trying to find something. But, but the uh, the fungi itself is is so powerful that they haven't found a product that can stay, you know, let's say it's the eight-week period that'll stay um, in position and not get eaten by the mushroom effectively. <laughs> so the plastic bag, unfortunately, still has to be the one that we're using currently. Could use We could use buckets and then wash and clean, but there's a lot of um, labour and water use in that, in that process. Because when you're growing mushrooms like that, you have to like keep you have to keep things really clean, don't you? Yeah, there's a there's a level of of cleanliness that you got to keep, and and just using pure alcohol as our as our cleaning modem um, allows us to do that. Because if you use chemical cleaners, yeah, all of a sudden you have a failure. We had a failure. I bought some sawdust from a uh, um, guy supplying our sawdust, and it obviously had come from where they used um, what we call chipboard. So in other words, glued together boards. Okay. And the sawdust grew nothing, literally grew nothing. It Be just... Because no of the glue. chemicals and the glue? Absolutely. So we say to people, we know that our mushrooms are completely chemical free because they won't grow unless it is. <laughs> yeah. They're very susceptible to any of the uh, yuckies that we otherwise deal with. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. Mm. Now tell me about this dung beetle nursery you mentioned like an hour ago, then I just <laughs> let go by. 
Well, our particular farm has got a, a row of trees along our creek and we've got a, a mountain, well, not even a mountain in, in your terms. <laughs> it's a range, you know, like a, um, a mountain range in our word that is on our um, northern boundary. And so we're a little bit isolated from getting other people's beetles or getting beetle movement. So when I went there and found that I only had two types, I only had two types of beetles and they're both small, I wanted to have a bit more robust beetles there, the ones that will take the, you know, the manure down into the soil half a metre or so uh, or a couple of feet. And so in order to do that, I was talking to my local land care group and they were starting this, this nursery operation. So I said, well, I'd love to be on board. So for nearly 12 months now, we've been trying to grow some more dung beetle. I don't know enough about them yet, but but I just want more of them is all I know. <laughs> I want more of them. <laughs> and of course, we another little uh, animal that's in our environment that came from somewhere else in the world is called the cane toad. And we got a lot of cane toad and it's a poisonous toad. I was going to say, they're like ultra poisonous. Like if a dog eats a cane toad, the dog's dead. You pretty much is going to have a yeah a pretty bad time. <laughs> they they have got some antidote now. They can survive them, but it's a costly deal. Um, so yeah, the cane toad is prolific in our environment. It's absolutely suited them down to the ground. Now we are seeing that nature's starting to understand that they don't want to eat cane toad because the uh, our, um, oh, I'm trying to think this several birds that have learned to turn them over and only eat their belly or their gut content. Uh, the go goanna, which you know is our big lizard or, or like a small monitor, it's learnt not to or has adapted to eating them. I'm not sure, but it's either not eating them or adapted because we're getting a lot more of them coming back. Um, so the only other trouble I've got with the dung is with the cane toad is I know he's eating my dung beetles. He's out there and, and munching on my dung beetles. <laughs> so I've either got to get my dung beetle population higher to than what the cane toad can take out or get some that, you know, are really robust and go down deep in the ground. Because if you've got an animal that'll, how else would you deal with the cane toad? Like, or can you do anything? Look, a lot of people go to the trouble of, of catching and disposing, but I, I could say that, as night falls, as it's just starting to go dark, if you drive out and you've got your lights on, we will see thousands. They are everywhere. So to even consider that I can go out there and make a difference, no, I'm not fighting nature like that. Um, I, you know, I'm taking note, taking notice, as you might say, of what, what works and what doesn't, and I'm seeing that nature is adapting to them and maybe their numbers will reduce just simply because nature gets back into balance. Um, as we've introduced a you know an animal that wasn't there originally, we'll probably balance out at some point. Too but bad the cane toads won't eat all the flies. That's the challenge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bugger them. They, uh, so yeah, I mean I, I don't know. I haven't got a solution for trying to get rid of them. That's for sure, and I'm not trying to. It's it's just one of those things. You know, go out and deal with what you can make a difference with. Yeah. Well, I think. Alan Savory, well, when I listened to him talk in 2016, he really changed my thinking when Holistic Management 3rd Edition came out, and I listened to that 
that's it's changed my thinking about native versus invasive species. Yep. Because what's the difference between an archaeologist and a grave robber? A couple hundred years. That's <laughs> it. So what's the difference? I mean, it every species at some point came from somewhere else. You know, horses. Horses were originally found on North America. They went across the Bering Land Bridge to Asia. They went extinct in America. Okay. Hmm. No. So is now that we have wild horses in the desert Southwest, are they invasive? Well, they act like an invasive species. They care for the land like an invasive species, but they're originally here. Hmm. Um, and invasive plants. Okay. So we have a grass called old world blue stem that was imported from the Mediterranean bred in the lab released down in Texas. And it's just, it's not great grass. It's not real palatable. It's allotropic. It's just, it's not great stuff, but it's here and we've got to learn how it's here. It's far too well established over the last 60 years to even think about trying to eradicate it. Yeah. It's present in the environment. Let's learn how to deal with it. Let's learn how to manage it because we're not going to kill it. And it's pointless to call it an alien species or an invasive species. Well, maybe not invasive, but it's pointless to call it an alien species. It's here. It's obviously naturalized. And it's very successful at taking over. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about one that we've got like that too, called giant rat's tail, and um, it's it's a C4 grass, extremely robust, extremely good at you know taking over, coming in, and being invasive. Um, do I say it's completely you know rubbish plant? No, I don't, because it's got a huge root system. You know, you think, wow. You know, if all my plants had good, strong root systems like that, I'd be happy. And in truth, there's there's only a couple of downsides to it. Number one is it will become a monoculture if you treat it all, you know, treat it all wrong. Um, and it's it is a, a tough plant. So teeth, you know, the teeth on cattle get worn down quicker. It's not necessarily bad as far as protein. You know, when it's in its green growing state, it's probably ten to twelve percent. So it's probably quite nice. You know, as a good grass. Do I want it on my farm? Not necessarily. Have I got it? Yes, in little ways. Am I managing to not have it? Yes, if I possibly can. Um, but on the other side, there's some good parts about it. You know, it is robust. So when it got dry, it was still there. It was still, you know, a grass and growing and the root systems were still uh, functioning. Um, so, yeah, I think, yeah, holistically, you got to try and not think it's bad. You got to try and see the goodness and and what can can work with you. I have noticed, like we we did come back to the farm with the thought that we had to do what everybody else has done. And hang on, Susie, can you bring the charger, please? Um, I'm just running a bit low on battery. Yeah, so we 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 deal with it. We um, use a bit of uh, straight urea as a burner in the crown of the plant. And we keep it at bay, but it's still in our system, still there. And I don't think I'll ever be rid of it, same as a cane toad. Um, but we do, you know, keep an eye on it, keep on, make sure it's not going to take over. My hope is that as my pastures get stronger and better going forward, it won't be a problem. It, it will just be part of the system as one plant amongst hundreds or thousands, whichever way you want to look at it. And, uh, and, that's yeah. really how I prefer to look at it too, is 
I just need to focus on making my system as good as it can be, as good as I can make it. Need to focus on you know the fundamentals. Focus on the soil, the water function, the mineral function, yep. the biological function. If we fo keep focusing on those and not doing, not chasing a single trait, not chasing animal performance, chasing the performance of the whole holistic integrated system. Yeah, we won't have problems with quote invasive or alien species converting to monoculture because we've managed the health, we've managed the biodiversity. And that novel plant or novel organism, yeah, it might disrupt your system for a while, but eventually things will begin to come back in balance and it'll find its and it'll find its role in the ecosystem. Yeah. I'll make a comment that when um, I took over the farm, my father had, you know, obviously run it himself for many years. And he and he told me, he said, look, it's amazing. In the last 10 years, trees have grown nearly twice as quick as they did before that. And, and we, you know, make some assumptions that maybe it's because our CO2 levels have risen. You know, everywhere in the world there's a measure. Trees love CO2, as do C4, you know, any plant needs um, our CO2 and to grow and grow quickly. So we are going to see different function at different stages if we've got a different environment. And that's what we've we've come to understand that, Number one is we have changed and humans are probably the biggest responsible for, you know, for making those changes. But our overall climate, everything else also changes. You know, you've got to, you go back thousands of years, you've got ice age back to too hot and back to too cold and all the rest. It's all going to change a little bit simply because we function around a big sun. You know, things will change. But what we can manage and what we do now is all about just allowing nature to be more in sync and being more in balance and, and we work with it. And, and when I talk to people on the farm, I say, what I'm trying to do here is improve the environment or allow it to be recovered from where it used to be um, whilst doing a production system. And that's what we have to understand. Everybody's got to do a, pro a production system to be land managers. Otherwise, we can't afford it. How, how do we do it if we can't afford it? Our governments have pulled back hugely on, on you know, helping that land management. They think they can do it better by just locking it up. Well, I think that's one thing I've seen here in this country is you guys have burnt some country that looks like it's going to take thousands of years to recover. Um, and we're going down the same path. Some of our fires that we've had at home in regions where they've just locked it up, have been hotter and, and more devastating than anything else could ever be. Um, so, yeah, we learn slow sometimes, I think, as human beings. We're a smart, you know, I don't know, smart, intelligent, I don't know, maybe. A, a person is smart, people are dumb. <laughs> that could Some, be. Something like that. Yeah. Um, um, and look, we're only operating on a very small patch, but we like to tell the story so others can do the same. Great stuff. Well, I really appreciate you coming on today telling and sharing your story. Um, we've, I've got a slide on out of here. I've got something to do today yep. and I don't want to screw up your vacation in beautiful California. So no, where no. can, where no. can we find you on the internet? Um, so our, our uh, label is Eastwell Farms and it's just eastwellfarms.com.au is our webpage. 
Um, we've got a bit of blogging from our, our son that works in the business with us. Alex is great with the IT side, so he's been um, he's been setting the website up. We get a bit of accolade about that. It's, it's, I think it's a good web page. We've been doing, um, uh, obviously, socials as well. So once again, just Eastwell Farms. It's Susie and myself and Alex is the farm runners or operators at the moment. And, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, we say come and visit. Like I've been looking to visit people here in, in America, but we, we're always open to having visitors. We, we love talking the business. We love talking about how we all could make a change. That's for sure. I'd love to see Australia someday. I really would. And hopefully I can get down there that 17 to 22 hours on an airplane. Though I'm not, eh, not real uh, sure about that. It depends on which way you fly. I think it's only about 14 or 15 if you do it the right way. <laughs> Still an awful long time to be cramped in a middle tube with a bunch of people I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But oh. I like this. If, you, if when you fly back, you you actually gain your day. So you're right. You don't lose anything. <laughs> Just get get to go live in the future for a while. Yeah, yeah. No, no. We 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 openly uh, encourage people to connect with us. Um, if you are in Australia, definitely come talk to us. I, we really love it when we get some interaction with others. That's for sure. And that's what we've been trying to do here while we're traveling. Um, it's only just, you know, part of enjoying your country is to, to meet some of the good people. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right. Brian well, thank Usher. You. Thank you thank very much for having me on. Thank you, sir. And uh, enjoy the rest of your vacation. And gang, go have a great week. We'll see you. Cheers.